evidence and answers. The death and resurrection of Christ transformed the lives of Christ's disciples, as well as his enemies and those who witnessed Jesus' final moments. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today in part two of this interview, Pat and his guest, Daniel Darling, discuss the impact of Christ's death and resurrection on the key characters of the Easter story and how the resurrection impacts us even today. Tradition says that Thomas spent the rest of his life evangelizing India and was martyred for his faith. Yes, you know, when I became a Christian, Thomas, I think, was the apostle I identified with most. And so when I wrote my first apologetics book, it was based on Thomas's words. You know, the title of my book is Unless I See. And those are the words of Thomas, because I think a lot of us who came very skeptical to Christianity, you know, I thought it was a very powerful story. But yeah, I had a lot of doubts and a lot of questions here. And so the title of my first book was based on Thomas's words. So great insights there. And for many of us who are in Asia, it is believed that Thomas made it all the way to India and may have even spent maybe four or five years in China planting a couple of churches there before he came back to India and was martyred there. So tremendous character there that often is overlooked many times in our study of the Easter account. I'm so glad you said that. And as an apologist, you probably really appreciate Thomas. And I did not know that about China, but that would make sense. And what a great what a great testimony legacy. Thomas asked the questions that gave us the answers that we now have to give us assurance of our faith. He asked the questions that resulted on the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one who tells us how to worship my Lord and my God. So he should be admired as a an, as an apostle of courage. Yes, you know, and now in the news, we're hearing a lot about women and women's rights and all these things. And one of the things that you point out that was so revolutionary in the ministry of Jesus is that he involved women in his ministry and that they were some of the first to announce the resurrection of Christ. Tell us why is this significant, especially in the cultural and historical context we find ourselves in in the New Testament? I think it's significant for two reasons. I think, number one, when you read most historians and scholars, they will tell you that in that first century in the Greco-Roman culture, that the testimony of women was not admissible as evidence. It was not, women just weren't taken seriously. In fact, when Paul is talking about his apologetic for the resurrection, he doesn't mention their testimony because he knows that it's not going to be believed. So if you were to fabricate a resurrection narrative... <laughs> you would not put forward women as your witnesses because it would be immediately, it just tells us the authenticity of the story. But secondly, and more importantly, I think it tells us something about Christianity, about the kingdom of God, that Christianity, true genuine Christianity, always elevates the status of women. Now today's a lot of debate and Christianity is seen as kind of a backward retrograde religion when it comes to women. But actually, if you look every place where Christianity has gone, and really historians have verified this, Christianity has elevated the status of women, and particularly true Christianity. And so I think it tells us something about the kingdom of God. The first evangelist and the first witness to the empty tomb and the first evangelist was not Pilate, the Roman governor. It was not the disciples. It was not the religious leaders. No, it was Mary Magdalene, a woman who had a, was afflicted with seven demons. I mean... 
this is the kind of people that Jesus is using to build his kingdom. And today we should take comfort that mostly God's kingdom, God's church is built through people whom nobody will ever know who are being faithful to his call. Yes. Yeah. You bring up a good point, you know, where a lot of countries in Asia where I'm in, you know, China is a good example where it's the gospel that really elevated the status of women in that society. And that's why in China, you know, women just embraced the gospel. And now the majority of missionaries coming out of China, you know, are indeed women because it's exactly what you're saying, how it really elevated the status of women wherever the gospel has gone. And it was modeled in the life of Jesus. It really was. And again, I think when we look at the characters of Easter, we don't just learn something new and fresh about the story that strengthens our faith, that this this is a historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead, that we can trust and believe in him. But it also, the people he chose to be part of this narrative tells us something about who he is. Uh, nothing's accidental. Nothing is filler. Nothing is just thrown in there. Everything is intentional. Yes. Okay. Now, those are the good guys. And now, also in your book, though, which I appreciate, you go looking at some of the dark figures, the bad guys in the whole account here. And, of course, the one that leads the way, of course, is Judas. And a lot of us wonder how is it that a man who saw the miracles of Christ, who sat down with Jesus day after day after day could turn on Christ. And so what do you think it was that caused Judas to turn on Jesus? And what does that teach us about the religious establishment that he felt had failed him? You know, it's it's shocking even 2,000 years later to see the story of Judas. You know, his name is synonymous with betrayal. Nobody's naming their kids. I don't think Judas Iscariot. <laughs> if you were to poll people in that first century and say, who is the most loyal, fervent Jesus follower, follower of this new movement? Everybody would have said Judas. Oh. Judas was the guy they trusted with the money. Yeah, that's right. And you don't give the money to someone you don't trust. So it's shocking that he's the one that turns on Jesus. So I think we get a few clues in there about why he turns. There's a lot of speculation over the years, what caused Judas to turn Judas never calls Jesus Lord, interestingly, like the others do. Huh. Uh, so there's hmm. speculation that people think, well, maybe he just only saw him as a teacher. Again, though, it, it's really haunting to us that Judas was a gospel preacher. He was sent out by Jesus, I mean, to teach and heal. There are people, there are going to be people in heaven, likely, who are there because of the preaching of Judas. And yet he turned on Jesus. I think there's a couple of things to think about. Judas came from probably an area near Hebron an area that's a, probably a little bit more radical than some of the other places like the Galilee, more anti-Rome. It's likely Judas looked to Jesus as the Messiah who was going to finally overthrow Rome. He was looking for a political revolution. And slowly Jesus is disabusing his disciples of that notion. When they want to make him king, for instance, he goes and hides instead of embracing it. If you're Judas, you're scratching your head saying, that's not how you build a movement. Other times he's teaching, hard teachings, and people are leaving. Instead of adding people, he's subtracting people. He's talking increasingly, Jesus says, about death and a resurrection. He's not resisting the arrest. He's talking about laying his life down. No one takes my life, I lay it down. These are not the marks of someone who's building a political revolution. And then, of course, he's there in that epic scene, and he allows 
Mary of Bethany to spill an expensive bottle of perfume over his feet, an extravagant gift. And if you're trying to be really wise and save resources to build a political movement, this is just wasteful. This is just extravagant. It was shocking to them. And I think this is where Judas started to think, I bet on the wrong movement. This is not the one that's going to lead revolution. So he cashes out. You know, he sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. That's not a really high amount. He kind of cut mm-hmm. his losses. What's sad about the Judas story is he comes to realize that he has betrayed the Son of God. He goes to the religious leaders with remorse, and they have nothing for him. They had used him to get to Jesus. And instead of pointing him to the one who could actually bear that shame, they have nothing for him. And he contrasts his life with Peter. Peter betrayed Jesus, but he found forgiveness in the one who he had betrayed. Judas could have found forgiveness in the one whom he had betrayed, and yet he didn't. And I think it's a word to everybody today that all of us have sinned against God. All of us have betrayed Jesus in some way. But we can find rescue and hope and forgiveness in the one who took on our sins and our betrayals. Yeah, you know, it's interesting at that Last Supper You know, when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, Judas was included in one that got his feet washed. And I believe uh, at the Last Supper, the way it's set up, Judas was on his left and John was on his right. And the left would have been the seat of honor. So all the way to the very end, Jesus was reaching out to Judas, you know, and extending grace and mercy to him to, to the very end there. He really is. And Judas washes, Jesus washes Judas' feet, even knowing he's going to betray him. Jesus knew Judas would betray him for all three years, and yet he ab- abided with him. That also gives us a little bit of a window that about living with people that you fundamentally disagree with. Jesus knew that Judas would betray him. He knew it in his humanity and in his divinity, and yet he lived with him side by side. That gives us a little window that you can't get along with that coworker, can't get along with that friend. You disagree vehemently and politically with that person next to you jesus washed their feet we can do the same yeah that's powerful insight there that's kind of insight you're going to get from daniel darling's book here characters of easter the one we're talking about now moving on to another of the bad guys here pontius Pilate. you know often you know he is portrayed or judged as one of the people who's too weak to stand up to the mob so he's often equated with weakness and but what you're saying here is that it's really not Jesus who was on trial before Pilate but it was Pilate who was on trial before Jesus explain that to us well if you're looking at this dynamic in Pilate's chambers Pilate is this powerful Roman governor he seemingly has Jesus life in his hands here's an itinerant rabbi Jesus who has no place to lay his head who's beaten to within an inch of his life who is seemingly powerless and yet 2,000 years later, we only know Pilate as a footnote into the story of Jesus. It's Jesus who has the power. Jesus had already resigned himself, accepted the call to take the cup of God's wrath and go to the cross and die for for the sins of his people. Jesus said, I don't, no one takes my life, I lay it down. Jesus is the one who resists the armies of heaven. And so really, it's not Jesus on trial, it's Pilate on trial. And what's interesting about him is that You see Jesus asking all these questions about Pilate. He's probing Pilate's soul. He tries to escape the question of Jesus. First, he he punts the trial over to Herod, thinking, I don't want to deal with this. Let Herod deal with it. Herod bounces Jesus right back into Pilate's jurisdiction. 
then he tries to offer them a deal. Okay, let's release Barabbas, or, or let's offer them a prisoner exchange. Surely they'll release Jesus instead of Barabbas, and then I'll be off the hook. The people don't go for that. Then his wife has a dream that Jesus is innocent. He can't even go home and have peace. <laughs> he Ultimately, he, he caved into the mob, and he sent Jesus to his death, but he tries to wash his hands with Jesus. But the point here is that he tried to, Pilate tried to avoid the question of Jesus, something that nobody can do. Like nobody, no human being can avoid the question of Jesus. You can't escape it. You can't avoid it. You could try to wash your hands of it. You can try to change the subject, but every human being will have to face the question of Jesus. Now in my sanctified imagination, I'd like to, I'd like to think later that Pilate looked back on this moment and said, this was more than just an innocent man that I know died as a sacrifice. This this is the Son of God. This is my Savior, too. I'd love to think that that's what happened with Pilate. Yeah. One of the most ironic parts, you know, in the whole dialogue in the trial is when Pilate asked Jesus, you know, what is truth? And he was just staring at the source of truth right there. And so it seemed like Pilate really didn't understand who Jesus was but you think maybe after reflecting on it he might have really perhaps understood the significance of the person who was standing in front of him I want to think he did you know mm -hmm. that I want to think that he you know later on just looked back and said this was not just an ordinary person this is the son of God the the savior of the world and you know Pilate's wife was tormented by it you know it's interesting how that dynamic plays out a lot of people feel like she was a believer. She was converted. It's interesting how the gospel was penetrating these areas like the Roman government, these places where you wouldn't think people would be believers and take hold of this. But that's exactly what happened. You know, another character that we almost know nothing about, but one that you highlight in your book here is Barabbas, the prisoner who was released instead of Jesus. So who was this guy and why... You say his story resonates with us. Why is that? Well, I think he resonates with us for a couple of reasons. Uh, here's a Barabbas was a, a mercenary. He was an insurrectionist. He was a domestic terrorist, someone who was you know, murder for hire. He was guilty of the crimes for which they convicted Jesus. Every year, Pilate would offer a political prisoner to the Jewish people to, to, to set one free as a way of mollifying some, and easing some of the tensions. So this was his way to try to say, let's get Jesus off the hook. Let's offer them an option here. Well, they obviously chose to free Barabbas, even though he, they hated him. But imagine being Barabbas. You're in your cell. You're about to go to your death. You're thinking, you know, this is my last few hours. Maybe you have a final meal. Maybe you're writing letters to your mother. You're getting your affairs in order. And all of a sudden you hear a knock on the cell door and it opens and a Roman soldier comes in. He's shaking his head in disbelief saying I, I don't know what happened here but you have been set free and here he is he leaves his record expunged he has a new lease on life he has freedom i wonder if he ever looked back and not didn't just see jesus as his ticket out of being executed by the roman government but he ever see jesus as his savior as his personal lord and savior in a sense all of us are barabbas all of us are guilty of crimes against God for which we should be punished. And yet Jesus has taken on our sin and punishment and we can go free. We can go on his record. We can have, we can be wiped clean of everything we've done. 
Barabbas, in a sense, is a microcosm of the whole gospel story. Wow, that's fascinating. Never looked at it that way. When you understand who Barabbas was, I think you uh, described it well in contemporary terms, you know, a domestic terrorist. I guess it would be kind of like, you know, one of the Sarnayev's brothers, you know, uh, the Boston bomber there offering a guy like him. It seemed like it was so obvious, the choice. Of course, Barabbas, look at this guy. So we're going to get Jesus off the hook. And yet they chose Barabbas over Jesus. That also kind of reflects on the crowd then, wasn't there? Just the way they felt about Jesus. Well, it's, you know, the crowd, it's interesting because there's a lot of confusion about who's in the crowd and what kind of religious leaders were there. You have different kinds of people in those days. You had the the Sadducees who were the ruling class. They didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in miracles. They only believed in the first five books of the of the Old Testament. They had a very comfortable relationship with Rome. They didn't like Jesus for two reasons. They didn't like his talk of resurrection, but they also saw him as a threat to their tenuous hold on power, their their kind of cozy relationship, their corrupt relationship with the Roman government. So they saw him as a threat. The Pharisees were actually closest to Jesus in terms of theology. They were the conservatives. They wanted spiritual renewal in Israel. They did not want Israel to conform itself to the Roman, Greco-Roman culture. They wanted separation and holiness, and they were right in that. But they were so focused on sort of the law that they could not see that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. And this is what Jesus was trying to teach them. Now, I do think after the resurrection, when you see Peter at Pentecost preaching and all these thousands are coming to faith in Jesus, I think most of those are Pharisees who have converted. Most of those are people who are saying, well, this was the son of God. And it's interesting, the people who are most likely to persecute the disciples after the resurrection, try to crack down on this Christian movement are probably Sadducees. So it's very interesting. And I talk a lot about that in my book. Yes. You know, I think one of the things that people don't understand is what you just brought up here. A lot of people say, well, they crucified Christ because they were jealous of his popularity. But I think you bring up the point, Jesus was a threat to the whole religious and political structure there. I mean, if what he was saying was indeed true, the whole priestly system was coming to an end because he was going to fulfill all of that. And the teachings of the Sadducees, like you said, a serious error would have been exposed and by Jesus. And so the entire religious system was threatened by this man, and they wanted to hold on to the seats of power that they had there in order to do so. They they had to put this guy under because he was a major threat, as you pointed out. I think that's what people need to understand. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I think the Pharisees' opposition to Jesus was grounded in actual theological difference. If Jesus wasn't the Son of God, his claims were blasphemous. To claim you're the son of God, to claim you're the, you know, before Abraham was, I am, these audacious claims. If he was not, then of course he's a heretic. Of course he's a threat. Now, of course, he fulfilled, they could not open their eyes and see that he fulfilled all the prophecies that the Old Testament prophets predicted. The miracles, the, the walking in water, the raising of the dead. Now, the Sadducees' opposition was, as you said, it was about power. So I do think after the resurrection, many of those Pharisees who had that theological opposition, turned and said, we missed it. This was the Son of God. You even see this with, you know, I think this is what you see, you know, sort of in the book of Acts a little bit. So it's interesting. You also have to think about the other people here, the Romans. 
and how the gospel penetrated even the Roman government, where you have the centurion saying, truly, this must have been the son of God. You have another centurion, a man who captains a 100 men coming and bowing before Jesus and saying, can you please, please heal my servant? And Jesus says, I have not found such faith in all of Israel. In other words, the greatest faith he found was not the people supposed to be closest to God, but the people who seemingly were farthest from him. You have a member of the handful of women who came to the tomb who was part of Herod's court, uh, your Pilate's wife, who many feel was a convert. And so I think one of the things for us to think about is this, is that the places where we least think the gospel can penetrate, where the light has been so extinguished, you think of places of power and all that. I don't think we should despair because the gospel is powerful and it can penetrate and convert the darkest hearts. If you were in that first century and someone told you Saul of Tarsus will one day write most of the New Testament and plant churches of this Jesus movement around the world, around the Roman Empire. We say, you're crazy. There's no way. Nobody's farther from Jesus than him. If you were to say, there's two members of the Sanhedrin who are followers of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who is a teacher in Israel, you would say, there's no way. So the people we least likely think are future leaders who are future Christians, God may be working on their hearts even in this moment. Yeah, Daniel, you know, as we are bringing this show to a close, there's a question out there that uh, I get asked quite a bit. So maybe you can share your insight or your take on this. But many people ask, you know, why is it that so many Jews do not believe in Jesus? We've got the same Old Testament, you know, and so why is it that so many did not believe? And even to this day, so many do not believe if we're looking at the same Old Testament books here. You know, I, I think this is one of the things I try to tell anybody who engages with the story of Easter, that I realize many people coming to Easter don't believe the story. They don't think it's true or they don't, they doubt the historicity of it. But what I like to say is this, investigate the claims of, of Christ. Walk through the evidence. Examine it for yourself. Read men like N.T. Wright, who has published an exhaustive apologetic for the resurrection, or Lee Strobel who was a former skeptic, or C.S. Lewis, who was a former skeptic. Investigate the claims of Christ. The other thing I like to say is this. Even if you don't believe this is true, you'll wish it was true. Because if Easter is true, it means that this world, which is so broken and dismal and sad and lonely and difficult and hard, will one day be renewed and restored. It means that death is not the final say. It means that one day we will be restored physically and spiritually will our bodies will rise again it means that you can have communion with god you can know god by faith in jesus and you can be known by god that's what i say to people at easter yes you know and i forgot who told me this but the principle that you're speaking of there if you can have hope in the future then you have power in the present and it's you know the resurrection of christ that gives us that sure unfading eternal hope that empowers us for life today which is what i think you're saying here is the great message of the easter story here that's exactly right that and easter is always an important time for us christians because it's easter is everything like paul said if, if easter is not true then we religious people of all people should be pity however this time of year this year after this awful covid year where death and disease and everything surrounds us 
I don't think there's a better time, a better moment for the message of Easter. Yeah, fantastic. Well, Daniel, it's been a great interview. Man, if listeners want more information and resources on you and the things that we've been talking about today, where can they go? Well, I would encourage them to go to my website, DanielDarling.com slash Easter. DanielDarling.com slash Easter. Or you can order this book, The Characters of Easter, at your favorite retailer. And I would love love for you to enjoy it and to examine the story of Easter. Fantastic. You've been listening to our interview with Daniel Darling. And we've been talking about his new book here, The Characters of Easter here. Fantastic book that we endorse that you're going to want to read. Actually, any book written by... Daniel here, you're going to want to read. So, Daniel, thanks for being a guest with us here on Evidence and Answers. Well, thank you, and uh, it's a privilege to be on here. I love the ministry that you're doing here on the radio. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps even hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online. You will also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucrat. 